Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of GoTime is brought to you by Airbrake. Airbrake is full stack error monitoring for Go applications. Get real time error alerts plus all the info you need to fix any error fast. And in this segment, I'm talking to Joe Godfrey, CEO of Airbrake, about why getting to the root cause of errors is so important. Look, Adam, to me, root cause is everything. All software has bugs. We all know that. And when you find a bug or, or when you can't find a bug, the amount of time that typically gets spent trying to chase around and figure out how to reproduce the problem and what's the cause of the problem, even like what part of the code kicked it off or what sort of actions drive it. I mean, that's hours and hours of time wasted spent chasing your tail instead of actually fixing the problem, improving the customer experience and getting back to building more features, which is really what your company is all about. So to me, being able to really understand like what is the root cause of this problem is the key factor to being able to solve that problem and get back to doing what's most important, which is building new features and improving your product. And and quite frankly, fixing the customer experience that's broken as long as that bug is out there. All right, check out Airbrake at airbrake.io slash GoTime. GoTime listeners get Airbrake for free for 30 days. Plus you get 50% off your first three months. Try it free today. Once again, airbrake.io slash GoTime. I'm Russ Cox, and this is Go Time. This is Go Time, a panel of Go experts and special guests every single week discussing the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. We record live every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Tune in at GoTime.fm. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 77. Uh, on the show today, we have myself, Eric St. Martin, and Carlicia Pinto. Hi, everybody. And Brian Kettleson. Hello, hello. And our special guest for today is uh, one of the members of the Go team, Russ Cox. Uh, welcome, Russ. Hello, Gophers. So um, I'm going to I- guess... <laughs> May I ask the first question? Sure. Go. I am dying because I've forever have wanted to ask this question to somebody, and Russ is uh, super appropriate. So, Russ, why is it that the most technically brilliant someone is the tiniest font on their website? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. I have no idea. I don't know. That was it not the question me. I was expecting. I don't think I've ever noticed that that correlation. Like now I want to go crawl people's websites and actually make a comparison. Jeez. Anyway. That's, okay. So that fits perfectly with the random bit of news that I read this morning on on uh, Hacker News. There was a, a link to um, an essay, I guess is the best way to put it, about that Southwest crash that happened yesterday. And the person that wrote the essay was a very pompous sounding individual with a harvard.edu website and it was the tiniest font ever so interesting i don't know if that's causation or correlation or or which but just saying so i'm gonna back things up for just a minute (laughs) i'm I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that most people listening probably know who russ is but uh if not and maybe a little background. Um, can you can you kind of let people know who you are and maybe how you got started on the Go team and kind of your history there? Sure, sure. So I'm Russ Cox. I'm currently the tech lead for the Go team, and I got involved with Go just about ten years ago. Uh, at the time, you know, I had worked at with Rob Pike on Plan Nine when I was in college, and then I did an internship at Google in grad school. And when I was finishing up grad school, Rob told me about Go and basically said, you know, hey, you know, we're trying to take all the things that we really loved about developing software on plan nine and make them work for writing the software that, you know, we want to write at Google and, you know, do you want to help with that? And, and I was like, yeah, of course. And, and that was, that was how I got in. And, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about this cause I, I thought you might ask this and it was about, you know, 10 years ago and I just can't believe how lucky, 
the ride has been since then. Uh, you know, first of all, like as I'm finishing grad school, this job came, comes along. That's like the perfect combination of all the things I'd been doing for the previous 10 years. Right. It really was just sort of everything I had done found its way into go somehow. And then I get to work with all these great people like Rob and Ken and Robert Griesemer and Ian Taylor. And, you know, we sort of toil away for two years having a lot of fun. And then the, the like truly amazing thing happens that honestly, like none of us expected, which was that we did this open source release and people actually wanted to use Go. That was like mind blowing to us. Uh, when we did the release, you know, I, Rob reminded me a while ago that I, I said to him a few days earlier before the release that, you know, my hope was that maybe a few people would notice and ideally whatever the next big language to come along would steal the concurrency and the interface ideas from Go. And that would be our tiny little contribution to making programming a little bit better. And, you know, so obviously like that didn't happen, uh, but I'm okay with how it turned out instead. <laughs> you Do gotta you, love the, uh, the opportunity uh, being presented to you by Rob Pike. I mean, who says no when Rob Pike says, come write a language with me? Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um, we were on a video call, actually. He was in Sydney at the time, and I was in Mountain View visiting Google. And so I didn't know, it was probably the middle of the night for him. But um, I remember, you know, after I hung up and just, like, thinking about it some more and, and just, like, I just couldn't believe my luck. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think uh, Brian and I uh, don't have the level of contribution you guys do, but, like, the finding this language we love and then, like, oh, we want to share it with other people and then kind of the explosion of, uh, we loved it, but we thought it was like a small niche maybe of people who were loved the language the same way we did. And I don't think we ever imagined it, the language exploding in popularity so fast. I, I think you estimated what, like 1 million go developers or something like that in a post. Yeah. Last, last summer we thought it was about half a million. And at, the, at this point we think it's over a million and, and, you know, we're trying to be conservative, right? We don't want to be just making numbers up, but those sort of conservative estimates, we think we're, we're over a million now. And, you know, honestly, like I can't even comprehend that. It's, it's just nuts. It's awesome. Yeah. I think, uh, in 2013, uh, when Brian and I first started talking about a conference, we hoped we could get like a hundred or 200 people to show up. So to think that there's a million people now is insane. Uh, I mean, honestly, it was insane. I was thinking about you know, the first GopherCon in 2014. I remember standing at the front of the room and just looking around and you know, I think that was what, 700 people. And I thought, wow, yeah. this, this is crazy. Like this cannot possibly keep going. And, and it clearly has. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I think, we we were amazed and thought like that had to be every Go programmer in the world, you know, at that time. Was... I think it was close. Rob, <laughs> the best comment, though, was from Rob. He, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, this is kind of like a debutante ball for my little baby. And I was just like, oh, oh. like our little girl grew up. <laughs> so cute. So what are you working on these days at uh, on the Go team? Are you, are you mostly kind of... Uh, leadership or is there a particular part of uh the go programming language that you're you're super super into right now outside of vigo which we will get to uh mostly i do sort of leadership and and um you know helping us decide priorities and and that sort of stuff uh you know especially since i had kids uh i, I don't have as much time to program as i i did before mm. um but uh so i spend a lot of time trying to help people other people be as productive as they can and, and then, you know, the Vigo stuff is the main work that I've been doing. Um, the last release, the main work I was doing was, was the build caching in the Go command, which, you know, it sounds like it might be unrelated, but really it was all about getting set up for Vigo. Build caching is awesome. Those build times just keep dropping. Test times keep dropping. It just makes me happy. So personally, yeah, I'm thrilled you. about it. I'm curious, this is, this is a little bit of a roundabout question, but I'm curious about Plan 9. Really curious. I know you've, you've been heavily in the uh, Plan 9 space. Is it something you can still use? Do you, do you find uses for Plan 9 today? So Plan 9 was a lot of things. Um, I mean, it really was its own world. And, um, you know, it, it predated Linux at some level. And... You know, in addition to the operating system, it had this whole way of thinking about resources and presenting them. And then it had all this, you know, simpler commands and UI. And it was, it was you know, derived from research Unix, but it was, it was not Unix. And, and so, like, 
there's a lot that that was Plan 9. That like, if you think about the experience of using Plan 9, there was there was you know there was the whole system. It wasn't just the operating system kernel. And so you know people still run the full system today. And then in addition to that, uh, when I was in grad school, I, I tried to use Plan 9 for a while, and eventually I realized that it just wasn't going to work out. Mainly because everyone else in my group was not using Plan 9, and so it was very hard to you know coordinate with people. So I took all of the user space software and I ported it to Unix, and it now runs on pretty much all the Unixes, and that's called Plan 9 from User Space, and uh, it's on, or Plan 9 port, all jammed together, no spaces. And if you, if you do Google search for Plan 9 port, you'll find the source code and you can download and install it. And I still use you know, essentially all the tools from Plan 9 and, and Rob's editor, Acme, and all of that. So, so yeah, I, I still use Plan 9 every day at some level, even though I'm on a Mac. Um, and I actually, I really think that a lot of the, the spirit and the way that we approached structuring programming in Go owes a lot to Plan 9. Plan 9 had its own language at one point that had concurrency, and we didn't call them Go routines, but it had Go routines, and it had channels. And it was the place where we really experimented with all this stuff. And, you know, we took what we learned, and we moved on to other systems. And, you know, I can run the editor on the Mac, and we can run all of the sort of concepts that we had over on Plan 9, we can, we can do them in Go now, and it's great. The thing I find most intriguing about Plan 9 is the file system. I don't understand all of it, but I've, I've read several articles about people who wrote Plan 9 file systems, and it, 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 seals, it seems like you can expose resources across a file system in any way you want. So the, the, the article I read, um, they used the folder structure to uh, to show different types of sorting for the files that were on the file system, so you could you could browse them sorted one way by going into a different directory, and they're the same files, but they're presented differently based on how you access them. And I just love the idea of of uh, using that file system metaphor for completely different purposes than just storing things on a disk. I really want to play with the 9fs. Yeah, it was it was a really fun fun system to use and explore. It, you know, it was a research system. It was really meant for for learning more about uh, you know the way it could work. Uh, we used it as our day to day programming environment for many years, and and the file systems. You know that was really the first interface. Um, it was the only interface in the whole system, and you know you got to define what happened when when the user called read and when the user called write, and so you know it's a little bit like slash proc on Linux where you know it really is kind of a free for all what. If you read and write files there, what happens? And mm-hmm. it was the same way with all of our file servers. And it was up to the person who wrote the file server to figure out you know, something that made sense that actually felt right to use. Um, we never had things like you know, automatic sorting of files or things like that. It was usually about presenting resources. But you know, it was really easy to share files. Um, the, the other really nice thing is that if everything is a file and presented as a file and you know how to share files, then you know how to share everything. And so you could do things like import slash proc from another machine and then run your debugger locally, but you were debugging a process on another machine. And, and that was not that uncommon. Uh, you know, you just did it because you wanted to be working on your machine. Wow. That sounds really powerful. Yeah, it was. Too bad we didn't have a web browser. <laughs> it's you know, honestly, that was... That was why I gave up. That was that was actually the the final straw. Was that it occurred to me that it was going to be so much easier to port literally all of the software from Plan Nine to Unix than it was to port a web browser over to Plan Nine. So, you know, I took the easiest path. I don't blame you. So I think the topic that's on everybody's mind right now is dependency management. But I think we should go there. Let's talk about Vigo and what led us to to where we're at with Vigo and, and what do you think about the future with dependency management? Wow. That's a lot. I know that's a loaded question. Like so five, I guess, five questions. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe I should start with, with, you know, what led us here. Right. And, you know, we released go get in about, about eight years ago now. And like, if you go back and read the mail thread, the very first thing that someone asked was, well, what are you going to do about versions? And we said, I don't know, you know, we'll find out. And, um, you know, GoGet has actually been fairly useful. But, of course, you know, not having versions uh, 
hinders various things. And so we started these discussions at GopherCon in 2016 and then into the fall, and, and you know, that led to DEP being released. Um, and the really important thing that, that DEP did is that it got author, package authors thinking explicitly about you know, issuing releases that are tagged with versions and users thinking about consuming tagged versions. And this was something that GoGet you know, had not had, right? Everyone was just, I'll put my code out there and you pick a commit that looks good to you. Um, even though they're these random hex numbers, just pick one you like. And, and so this idea that I'm going to mark the ones that I think you should be using and you probably shouldn't be using the other ones is really an important social change for the community. And, and I think that that's the, the most important thing that, that's happened uh, as far as like changing people's behaviors. Um, but there's this, there's this problem that was really bugging me about a year ago that I, I couldn't articulate at first. And it was that you know, one of the major goals of Go is to work well for these really large-scale software developments. Um, and so that, that means grad, you have to have gradual changes. And by gradual, I mean that you've got some change that you want to make throughout your whole project. And it has to be OK to make that change one package or maybe even one file at a time. Because you've just got too much source code to change it all in one commit. And so I, I gave a talk at Gotham Go a few years ago showing how important it was to make gradual changes for, for various uh, you know, code repair. And, and I'm showing, in particular, how type aliases uh, are essentially required for that kind of gradual change when you're moving a type from one package to another. But you know, a similar problem happens when you need to update a large program from using v1 of a package to v2 of a package. You can't expect that the entire project is going to move from v1 to v2 in one commit. Um, you know, for one thing, the code is coming from different repositories. There's no such thing as one commit. And so, you know, it has to, once your program gets big enough, it absolutely has to be the case that you can migrate the program a little at a time. You know, one part of it is now on v2, now, now more of it is on v2, and eventually it's all converted, but it's this gradual thing, and you've got a working program the whole time. And so I was thinking about, you know, how is this going to apply? And, you know, Deb's design really forces you to decide. It says, for an entire build, I want to know which one version I'm going to use. And, you know, this seemed like, if one of Go's goals is to work for software at scale, you know, this isn't going to actually work. And so then, you know, I, I thought a lot about this, and this led me to this idea that, well, you know, if we're going to take Semver, which is what people want and, and kind of expect, right, like everyone is expecting Semver, then Semver actually gives us a way to talk about this because they have this idea of a major version, and if the major version is the same and otherwise the version is newer, then it's supposed to be backwards compatible with this older one. But when the major version changes, then it's OK to make breaking changes. And so if you just put the major version in the import path, then now you've established that any particular import path should never change what it, what it means. You know, new things might get added, but things shouldn't be removed. Things shouldn't break. Um, and if you do that, and I call this now semantic import versioning, if you do that, then a lot of other things get a lot simpler. And a lot of the complexity that's involved in selecting what's going to um, you know, which version you're going to use, and all that sort of stuff, a lot of that complexity just melts away. And so this took me probably about six months to sort of realize. Um, you know, I'm mostly doing other things. Uh, I get pulled off for other projects at Google sometimes. And, but around November of last year, it occurred, to, you know, that was sort of the aha moment I had when I said, wow, like, if we do this, it really seems like this might work really, really well. And then I spent a chunk of the next couple months prototyping this idea and you know, trying to convince myself that it was worth sharing with people. Um, and then, of course, in mid-February, I posted you know, a whole lot of text about it. And that's where we are now. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too. And I know that there's still some big supporters of DEP. Um, and there's kind of, uh, is there a lot more buy-in now from the um, kind of depth supporters after kind of taking some time to, to take all this in? Or is there still kind of some points that, um, points of contention with adoption? I know some people didn't like the idea of the minimal version selection. Well, I, I haven't actually talked much with, um, you know, I, I haven't been involved in sort of discussions about trying to convince people to use Vigo today. Uh, you know, what we released was a prototype. We wanted people to experiment and tell us what worked and what didn't. If they wanted to try it in production, it worked with just a standard Go tool chain so that they weren't running you know, some experimental compiler or experimental runtime. So as long as the program built, you're probably OK running it. Uh, but we, we didn't actually want to tell people, you know, go out and convert everything right now, because we weren't ready. There are things that are going to change. And so 
you know, we haven't gotten to the point yet where we've really gone out and said, hey, we'd really like you to change. And if people say, no, I don't want to change, then have a discussion about, you know, what's wrong or, or something like that. We're getting close to that. But uh, at the moment, we've, we've really just been taking the initial feedback, trying to incorporate it and understand, um, you know, what we might need to modify a little bit and trying to get something ready that we can get to that next step where we start to actually have conversations with people about, you know, we'd like you to actually use this. You know, can we do that? And I guess that's an important thing to um, note that part of the plan for Vigo in the future is as these things are decided and people try it out and, you know, the kind of the design is adjusted based on use cases that weren't initially thought of in the beginning. The the end goal is for this to ultimately end up as part of the Go tool chain and not an additional tool. Yeah, absolutely. This is just supposed to be the Go command. Uh, you shouldn't have to know it's there for the most part. Um, I really want it to fade into the background. I, I want it to be the case that, you know, you just don't think about it. It mostly works. When it does break, you understand what's wrong and you just do your work instead of worrying about versions. You know, the only pushback that I've seen anywhere, I follow the Vigo channel on uh, the Gopher Slack. And really the only pushback that I see is the the uh, version number being as in part of the import path. I think that's that's something that grates on some people. But that's really the only complaint I've seen, only big complaint. Yeah, that's definitely a sticking point. Um, and, and it's not where I thought we were going to be. I mean, if you had asked me nine months ago or 12 months ago, you know, do you, do you think version numbers belong in import paths? I would have said, no, absolutely not. And I also would have said, you know, it kind of doesn't matter. It's, it's kind of a matter of taste. And I think from a taste perspective, they probably shouldn't be there. And you know, I wouldn't really have had much more to say other than that. And it wasn't until November that I realized that, you know, if we do put them in the import paths, it actually has this very important system effect that it simplifies things. And now you can have version one and version two in your same build. And all the tools just automatically keep those two things separate instead of, you know, understanding that actually there's two of a particular import path. And, you know, every time you see one, you have to ask, well, which one is this? If you just use different names for them, all of those problems go away. And so... Uh, the thing I would tell to myself from 12 months ago is, you know, look, we've actually got a, a good reason for this. It's not that, you know, we think it looks nice. Uh, in fact, I, I don't think it looks nice, but I think that we'll get used to it and it'll look normal in a few months or maybe, you know, half a year or a year. <laughs> well, like GoPath, a lot of people resisted GoPath, but you know, now a lot of us are so ardent about using the GoPath. Everything goes in the GoPath, not just Go code. Well, we'll change that too. Maybe you'll get over that. <laughs> I doubt and, it. I mean, even if you think about imports, right? Like the fact that it is actually a URL, like a lot of people who look at Go who aren't in the Go community or are just getting into it think it's the oddest thing ever. And once you've been around, you don't really think about it much. In fact, I kind of like it. Like, oh, I can go find the source code at this URL, right? Um, but yeah, I think anything new or different just takes time to kind of get used to. Yeah. And, and I, I remember that transition. I mean, we were, uh, you know, we, we had code without URLs. People just handed out code and you said, oh, I have a package called Foo and, you know, just here, download this and put it in your GoPath under Foo. And, and you just had to put it all together yourself. And, you know, that, that actually worked pretty well, but you couldn't automate any of that. And when we introduced URLs, absolutely, they looked ugly. But now we think, oh yeah, that's just the way Go code looks. It's fine. And talking about changes, is GoGet going to go away? I don't think GoGet will go away. Um, it's, it's going to change in the way it works. I'd really like to keep you know, commands working as well as they, they can, you know, as close as they can to what, what we have already. So, for example, I write lots of little throwaway commands, and you know, there's like a two-factor authentication thing on, at rsc.io slash 2FA, and I tell people, you know, run GoGet, rsc.io slash 2fa and you have this command now and so that's at some level you know the ui or the ux of the go command and i want to preserve that i want that to continue to install a command for you um but obviously it's not going to work exactly the same way as as it does today because it you know there's all this new stuff around modules and exactly what that means but the the end effect of something gets installed is supposed to stay um the write-up from february essentially overloads get to mean a few things. It means do the install and also download, which are the two meanings it has today, and then also update the, the what we call the go.mod file, 
which has all the versions in it that you're using for your future builds. And so if you wanted to adjust the version of something you were using, you might say, go get this import path at V1.2 or something like that. And that part, it's not obvious that, you know, that's a third thing that go get does. And it's not entirely obvious that we shouldn't move that out to a, a different command, but uh, we're still trying to figure that out. But, but, you know, if you have in your fingers, go get something to go install a command, we absolutely want to keep that Pitch. working. For the record, my vote is to let GoGet continue to update that GoMod file because I love that a lot. So do you have a particular timeline in mind for um, ultimately seeing this uh, in the Go tool? I know that's kind of hard because it's hard to predict what will come up and everything, but what's, what's your ideal timeline for this being kind of baked fully in? Well, fully in... You know, it's obviously not going to happen in 1.11, which is wrapping up development half now, and then we'll do three months of, of testing and, you know, bug fixing. Uh, I guess that Go 1.11 is meant to come out on August 1st, so it'll come out, you know, August 15th or whatever. Um, and then Go 1.12 would be February 1st. And so my guess would we, we definitely want to have a Go release where the Go command is aware of modules and you know, can be used with module code and people get a sense of what it's like, but we're not committing to all the details uh, staying the same forever. And we're sort of a kind of technology preview, but as part of a release so that people who only run releases can, can experiment with it. And we've done this before with some of the other changes. Like when we added vendoring, that was, there was kind of a preview release and then there was the real one. So my hope is that we can do the preview release and then maybe the one after that is the real release. But, you know, like like you were saying, things come up and the timing might shift. But, you know, it looks to me like maybe Go 111 can be the preview release. And then the only question after that, assuming that happens, you know, and that's still a question. But assuming that happens, then Go 112, you know, maybe that's the real release. Or maybe we have to, you know, shuffle things around enough that we do another different technology preview release. Um, but we'll see. My, my goal would be that we do the, the preview in 111. And then in 112, you know, we have the full thing. But even once we have the full thing, we're not done. There's a lot of tooling and other uh, follow-on stuff to really, you know, build build up some more ecosystem around it, and you know that all is uh, disconnected from the release. And so maybe, you know, maybe that that happens after one twelve. Maybe it happens concurrently with one twelve. It's sort of hard to say. And two point you know, maybe it's not. Yeah, two point um, <laughs> I think that was a dismissal. It sounded like a dismissal. Um, yeah, I don't know when 2.0 is happening, so it's, it's hard to tie things to that. Um, you know, I actually, if you want to shift gears just a little bit, uh, you know, I, I think that 2.0 will be kind of a non-event. I think that we'll probably end up, uh, you know, making changes a little bit at a time in the one series. And at some point we'll say, you know what, enough has happened. Let's call this one go to. And um, you know, so you're saying there will not be generics. No, no, no. I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> that was a big jump. Because that, that would be a big event, I would say. Well, but maybe generics are like 1.54 or something. Gotcha. This episode of GoTime is brought to you by Active State. Active State gives you a faster way to build and secure open source runtimes from your first line of code on through to production. Every second you spend building your Go distro or open source language distro is less time spent on doing the work you love. You got better things to do. You know it. I know it. And with Active State, you can focus on your code and leave the open source to them. Your teams can standardize with Go builds from Active State for your specific use. You'll have less friction in the development cycle, and that means you can deliver apps faster. Try Active State and see why it was chosen by IBM, Microsoft, NASA, Siemens, PepsiCo, and more. Discover for yourself why millions of developers trust Active State to build their open source language distros. Check them out at activestate.com/gotime. Once again, activestate.com/gotime. Yeah, so that I guess the that's interesting um, that at some point 
you might just label something 2.0. But does that mean you don't give yourself the opportunity to make breaking changes to get away from the Go One compatibility guarantees? Or is just the hope that you're never really breaking any old Go code ever? Well, maybe not ever, but you try your best not to. We, we definitely want to fix some things, but at the same time, we, you know, we don't want to hurt people, right? Like we have a million users. Um, we don't want to, you know, have 10% of them walk away or 50% of them walk away because we broke all their old, old code and they can't do anything anymore. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to name names, but we all know, you know, transitions that have been like that. And so, you know, we're sensitive to both sides of that. And so one thing you could imagine doing that we've, we've kind of talked about a little bit is, you know, if you had some sort of signal that this is a go-to program, and, you know, let's leave to the side for, this, for a second exactly what that signal is, but somewhere you can extract a bit from the source code that says, I'm trying to be go-to or I'm trying to be go 2.1 or whatever. Um, and then it just, you know, it compiles differently and, you know, different things are available. So, you know, maybe there's some things we want to take out of the language that were mistakes, but we can't break everyone's code. And so they're going to stay in the compiler forever. But if you're compiling in go-to mode, you don't have that, but you do have, you know, better error handling or something like that. And so, um, you know, that's one way we could evolve and, you know, the practices, the active practices evolve, but all the old code keeps working. And, you know, I don't know if that's exactly what's going to happen. Probably not. But um, something along those lines is, is what we've been thinking about. And it's very attractive because you don't break everything, but you do get to, you know, improve. You hinted that concept in the Vigo papers that you wrote, you know, the idea of writing forward and backward compatible um, I don't want to say landing, but you know, the, the, the main library imports might be smart enough to understand what to do based on versioning. And then the go tooling could change how it compiles based on that. And you, you used a, an example of like a go fix command that might, might fix that. Is that something that, that you expect to be in the compiler or, or in an external tool set? I don't think it would be in the compiler. Um, I think that that would really be go fix. I think that, you know, go fix right now does very little because we don't break things. So you don't have to fix your code. Can I uh, tell you how much I loved go because of go fix in the beginning? Oh my God. <laughs> when things were the, changing all the time, pre one. It was the best ever. You, we download release 56, run go fix and ship it to production. Do just done. <laughs> Hopefully you run your tests first. We, we, we actually talked then. about it. Uh, one episode where the only, I forget what, what release I started using Go in, but um, the only thing I remember ever having to manually fix in all of those breaking changes was when the rune was introduced because it couldn't tell the difference between whether it was supposed to be a byte or a rune. Right, right. Yeah, so, you know, Go fix, the, the real problem, right, is that it, it was, we wrote these one-offs every time we made a change, and it really, it wasn't something that scaled. And the cool thing about the, the little throwaway comment at the end of that, that first blog post about GoFix is that you could imagine, you could really imagine GoFix being a general thing to help you migrate from V1 to V2 of an API. And the, the way that it was presented there, you know, it can't do everything, but the things that it could do, it could actually do completely flawlessly because it would look at something and say, oh, V1 is now implemented as call this function from V2 and change the arguments a little bit in the following way. And, mm -hmm. you know, clearly if you're happy running that code, you should be happy essentially manually inlining that code, except it's automatically inlining the code, uh, but doing it in the source code. So now the source code refers directly to V2 instead of V1. And, you know, that should, that should be fine, right? And then now GoFix works for everyone. It's not just these one-offs that are about the language. So, you know, I think that'd be really exciting. We haven't, we haven't actually done that. Uh, and so maybe something doesn't work about that. But I think it'd be a lot of fun. You know, it's hard, hard to put your finger on the best features of Go, but the, uh, the ability for us to write tooling like that is, it's gotta be top three in the way we can, uh, rewrite Go source code, the way we could change things on the fly, you know, the, the AST parsing and you know, all of that's just, it's such an amazing feature of Go. And talking about change, Russ, I would like to ask you for what would you say would be things that you would like to have in the language that maybe is not something that necessarily there will be enough consensus or makes sense to add, but you personally would like to have? And also things that you would like to remove from the language? 
Oh boy. Um, well, on the, on the adding side, it's usually not so much a problem of consensus. I think that if we talk about things uh, long enough, then typically there's you know specific details we might object to, and you know everything gets better as a result. Usually, um, the way it worked early on was that you know someone would have a crazy idea, and when you present the crazy idea to people, instead of turning it down immediately and just saying no, we're not going to do that. You say, okay, well, you know, oh, well, maybe we could change this detail, right? And as if you're willing to essentially, you know, be improvisational about it and accept what what's been presented, and then try to figure out how to make it better, you know, we we made a lot of progress that way. And so I'm not so worried about not reaching consensus. I'm more worried about just never figuring out the right thing to do. And so one one example of that um, is immutability. Um, I would love to have better support in the language for saying things like. You know, when you call a write function on a file to write some bytes to a file, I would like to, the language to be able to guarantee for you and you say in the program, the write function is allowed to write the bytes to the file, it is not allowed to modify the bytes, and it is not allowed to keep a reference to the bytes after the mm. function returns, right? So that mm. after the function returns, I know I can modify the bytes and no one's looking at them anymore. And, you know, this is kind of Rust's superpower, right? This is the, the thing that makes Rust so amazing. And... I don't need the full superpower. I'd be happy with like baby superpowers, but um, I don't even see how to do that. And and that's that's the one thing that you know I would absolutely love to figure out. Uh, but I just you know I've I've talked to a bunch of people about it, and it's one of these things that if there's if there's any small case where you're not 100% right about it, you know you can't prove anything anymore. You really you know it has to be airtight and. It, you know, what Rust does is, you know, it gets it all right and it's completely airtight. And, you know, I would like to find a way to do that without quite so much notation. And I, I don't know if that's possible or not. Is backwards compatibility a constraint for, for making that work? Yeah, it absolutely is um, in the sense that, like, if we wanted to just be Rust, um, you know, Go wouldn't compile yeah. anymore. But, yeah. uh, uh it's it's not it's not so much about backwards compatibility I don't think as about the sorts of programs we want to be able to write, and so I think there's a lot of things where we'd say well we don't want to have to put annotations in this program, and uh, you know or like we think that this should work, and it's hard to you know if you don't annotate every last piece of the program then a the compiler has a hard time figuring out what's going on, and so it's not so much compatibility as you know conflicts with the rest of the design. I mean, Go is at a certain spot in the design space, and we consciously kind of put it there. And we don't want to move too far away from that. You know, I mean, yeah. you, you end up with a different language. That makes sense. And while you're still in the subject of uh, making or not making changes to the language, I remember your talk from last year at GopherCon Denver. And I remember you requesting the community to submit reports and this is something that we bring up on the show once in a while, reminding people to submit those reports. And I'm curious to know if you guys ended up getting anything useful out of that. I think we've gotten a few useful ones. Um, there haven't been that many uh, that I've seen. I haven't looked uh, in the last few months, but Robert and Ian have been sort of taking point on triaging all the, the stuff that's coming in. Uh, they've been going through all of the go-to issues on the issue tracker and, and trying to figure out, you know, is this an obvious yes, obvious no? Is this something we need to put into a think about bucket? And then trying to organize them. And, and that, you know, that's still an ongoing process. Um, and, and so the experience reports are the next thing after the issues to start going through. And so I haven't, I haven't looked at the, the current list in very much detail yet. But the really critical part about the experience reports is that they're kind of like tests. You know, if, if someone says, you know, I did the following, and, and this is a place where, you know, better error handling would have really helped. And then we come up with a design for better error handling, and we can go back to that report and say, well, how would you have used that here? And then we can see, oh, you know, actually that wouldn't have helped there because there's this other detail that doesn't capture. Um, hmm. Or, you know, it would have been great. And so the, the really valuable thing is to get us thinking and also to serve as test cases when we have, um, you know, sort of, more proposals, more concrete proposals to evaluate. And so we haven't gotten to the point where, you know, we can use those for evaluation yet, but I think at, at that point, um, they'll be very helpful. And, you know, the other part that I wanted from the experience reports was to get a sense of, you know, what are we missing? What, what are we not thinking about? And, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that 
people want generics, people want package management, people want better error handling. And after that, it seems like we weren't really, really missing anything. Um, it's not that there's nothing missing, it's just that there's nothing at that level of importance that we're missing. And so that's good to know. Um, if you look at the survey that we just did, the, the end of year survey, I think the next thing in the, you know, what is go missing question after those three is UI. And, but UI is, is probably an order of magnitude less popular than the first three. So if we get those first three out of the way, uh, I think that'll be a, a really you know, big deal for people. And, and then you know, the rest is kind of lower order bits. It's a UI is an order of magnitude more complicated than all of those combined, too. Yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of different things. It's like not at all obvious that UI is something that the core library should be doing anyway. So I feel pretty good about not having you know a plan for UI. I'm happy to let other people have that plan who actually understand UI. So we got a good question in the Slack channel. Lauren asks, uh, in what role do you see for Go moving forward? In which space should Go evolve and which space should Go stay away from? Is this something that's influenced by Google or the community or a mixture of both? It's hard to say. I mean, I don't really think of spaces that way. And so, you know, we've staked out for Go that Go is supposed to be about programming in the large, where large is large scale programming, where you have lots of engineers or lots of code. And also, you know, large-scale deployments where you have, you know, big distributed systems, things where you're talking to a lot of things at once and the concurrency really kicks in. And so I think those are still Go's strengths. And I think that Go is always going to be centered around those strengths. And to the extent that, you know, Go can stay centered around those and grow and, you know, make contributions in other areas, that's fantastic. Um, I, I, you know, I would, I would be hesitant to stray too far away from, from those strengths. So if there's something that we want to pick up as far as a use case, or that someone proposed to pick up as a use case, and it meant essentially you know, not taking advantage of either one of those, then that would give me some pause. So for example, we talked to a team at one point who was working on 16-bit code on you know, very, very tiny microcontrollers. And they wanted to know if Go would be a good fit, and we said no. Uh, you know, that's not something you'll want to do. Um, and because, you know, that's not what Go is targeting. Go is targeting server machines. And if you're targeting 16-bit systems, that's just a totally different ballpark. Um, have you seen some of, uh, like, MGo and things that actually run on Cortex M0s? I think it supports kind of like a subset of Go. But it looks very Go-like. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it. I heard you talking about it on the, the episode uh, last week or the week before. But... Um, I haven't had a chance to look at it. And I actually, I admit, I don't know what a Cortex-M0 is. How beefy a processor is that? Uh, it has like 16K of RAM, I believe. Yeah, they're tiny. And, and just, just to pause for a minute, did we just confirm that you're a GoTime listener? I, I do. I listen to podcasts a fair amount. I, I drive half an hour back and forth to work every day, and I listen to GoTime. I'm putting that on LinkedIn. <laughs> but yeah, so... It's, it's got four kilobytes of RAM. It's a 48 megahertz processor, 16K of, of flash. Okay, cool. But it sounds, but yeah. it sounds like it's a, different, it's a different Go implementation. Yeah, for the most part, um, though, you know, you've got your functions and imports and, and structs. And I think it supports Go routines and channels, too. They just don't work exactly the same way. But it's interesting because if you like the syntax of Go, it's, you know... It's much more appealing than writing these things in C, I'll tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. I mean, if MGO had existed when we were talking to that team, maybe we would have suggested that. But yeah, it's, it's interesting, though, and I'm curious to hear like, um, kind of the way you and some of the core people who um, worked on the language in the beginning like, feel when you see stuff like this. Because it wasn't the end goal, right? But you're like, oh, yeah, embedded probably isn't that great for Go. And then it's like, oh, wait, people are using it to do embedded. Well, it's not so much that embedded is not great for Go. It was really that the current Go implementation is not at all suited for embedded. And so if a team comes to us and says, you know, we want you to, you know, figure out a way to make Go run on a 16-bit system, what they're really asking you to do is start over. And it sounds like, you know, the MGo authors pretty much did start over. And that's fantastic. And they, and they got something that's great. Um, and so there, there is a question about sort of the language versus the implementations. And, you know, I was sort of focusing more on, like, where is the implementation going to go? Um, you know, a lot of 
you can move into a lot of spaces without changing much about the language. And so I think that the, the main concern is the implementation. And, and I love having more implementations. I think MGo is awesome. I think Gopher.js is awesome. Um, you know, all of these are fantastic. It's, it's, it's just mind-blowing, but it's fantastic. I guess that's a good point too, right? Is there's a difference between having full coverage of the language and having something that's very Go-like. And I guess the Go team's focus is on areas that you can implement the entirety of the language. So you can't do all of the language on 16-bit or small microcontrollers. It's only a subset. And, you know, why focus your time there? Yeah, it, w- it would just be a totally separate project as far as the implementation. And, you know, we, we have limited time and we're trying to make the current implementation as good as we can. So it probably doesn't make sense to start a second one for us. But I'm, I'm thrilled that other people are doing it. I think it's just fantastic. So what would you consider the, the specification for a Go implementation? Uh, one of the questions we had from Slack was, you know, how do you feel about the LLVM uh, versions of Go, the WebAssembly, you know, all of the different versions of Go? Is there, a, is there something that looks like a, a Go specification or is that just the, the Go one test suite guarantee? I mean, there is a, a Go language specification. So, you know, first, let's get that working. Um, as far as like compliance, yeah, if you can run all that bash, which is all of our um, all of our tests, basically, then sure, that sounds good. Let's do that. Um, you know, I, I want as many Go implementations as possible, right? That's how you know that it really works. And you know, people who sit near me are working on LLVM and and doing a great job pushing that forward. Um, and you know, Gopher.js and Wasm and all these things, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Now, we had another question, and we're starting to run low on time. Uh, what can you tell us about what the, the shape of the Go team looks like today? How many people at Google are working on Go? How many, how many people, what are they doing? What are, what's the Go team looking like today? Well, there's tons of people at Google working on Go in the sense of using Go, writing libraries in Go, all that sort of stuff. Uh, the core Go team, which is the people that you know, you'd actually see doing things on the mailing list and, and that sort of stuff, um, is about 30 people right now. And, you know, we focus on really doing as little as possible as far as the scope, right? So, you know, it's not, you know, there's a ton of Java and C++ in the world and at Google. And it's not the case that, you know, the collection of all the people writing Java or C++ in the world are called the Java team or the C++ team. And so we've been very consciously trying to encourage people like, look, if you're building X in Go, that's the X team, that's not the Go team. And so, you know, we've been, we've been trying to focus on the language and the libraries and so the, the core pieces that, you know, we really need to be deeply involved in. Um, and so that's, that's what we mainly work on. Can you give us a sense of uh, the adoption of Go at Google or is that proprietary? Uh, I mean, I can give you a sense. It's used for a number of, you know, fairly important things. There's tons of people checking in Go code every day. And, you know, we're pretty happy about that. That's a good sense. Apparently it helps if you're not on mute. (laughs) (laughs) My dog was scratching and I was like, I don't think anybody wants to listen to that. So I muted myself and then forgot to unmute. So, all right. So I think we've got like uh, maybe 10 or 15 minutes left of the show. Um, do you guys want to talk about any projects and news? Holy cow. So many projects and news. I know we, we just um, mentioned MGO and kind of talking about it last week. Um, there is a follow-up to that post um, as well that we'll put in the show notes. Um, so if you want to follow along, I think it was Mikhail was his name that posted it. I'd have to click the link. But yeah, so there's a follow-up, uh, a second part to that series. I'll put the link in Slack, and we'll get that in the show notes, too. The thing that really got me excited this week was um, Elgo, which is at github.com slash Yunabe, Y-U-N-A-B-E slash Elgo. And that's uh, Jupyter Notebooks, and it's 100% Go compatible. So um, unlike the Gopher Notes implementation, which is still awesome, um, but it has a lot of limitations about what kind of Go code it, it will run. 
this new Elgo implementation for Jupyter Notebooks uh, does everything, including importing external code, um, gives you runtime code in introspection, code completion, the whole works. It's, it's amazing. I was playing with it last night and I can think of a million ways to use this for teaching Go specifically. So I'm super excited. Did anybody see the announcement yesterday from Netflix for Titus? Who's Netflix? <laughs> Just a small company that does some video streaming, I think. That was for you, Scott, heckling us in, in uh, channel. You get this. Yeah, see? So, so <laughs> I, I think that was just mentioned yesterday. I haven't got to play with it and really kind of um, take in the differences between some of the other container runtimes. But I'm pretty positive that their runtime or executor, I think is what they call it, is uh, implemented in Go. But the control plane is in, in Java. This is where we need our, our sound effects board. Dun, dun, dun. I, I skimmed the article and, and I seem to remember that it's it's like a divergence of uh, of Mesos, perhaps. I'm not positive about that, but it was it's based on something else, but it's diverged completely in and, and it seems to uh, very much embrace the Amazon uh, cloud environment. Like it's it's kind of built in, which looked interesting. All right. Do we have anything else or do you guys want to move into Free Software Friday? Let's hit Free Software Friday. There's some good stuff in there, too. All right. Who wants to go first? You. Me. All right. <laughs> so I think I may or may not have mentioned this uh, project before, but as we know, uh, there's a lot of overlap in the containers and Go world. Um, Kube Lego uh, by Jetstack on GitHub. And it is a controller that runs in your Kubernetes cluster. And if you add annotations to your ingress, essentially it will um, go out using Let's Encrypt and fetch certificates for um, all of the host names that you have configured in there and configure Nginx automatically for you, which is awesome because then we can do TLS everywhere and nobody has to do any actual work for it. Well, assuming you're running Kubernetes. That's amazing. <laughs> Carlisi, you want to go next? Yeah. I have a shout out to all of the people who added their names to the um, new speakers resources page, wiki page uh, that, Go, that Go is maintaining. And I'm pretty sure it was Russ Cox who started this page. And it's just fantastic to see a bunch of people making themselves available to help with talk proposals and uh, speaking questions, because uh, we do need more people speaking, especially new people. So shout out to every single one of you on that page. Yeah, that's I'll sec go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Russ. I was saying, I'll second that, that I'm absolutely thrilled that that so many people are are interested in helping um and you know absolutely you know we want to see as many new new speakers and new perspectives as we can and um you know i really want to encourage everyone to to try to make people feel welcome encourage people to speak and uh you know conference organizers to do everything you can to get new people to come because uh you know we have a million people but that's not enough we need uh all sorts of people and, and let's make that happen yay and I'm curious how um, we can get more people to take advantage of that. Because I think that, you know, we see these lists and we see people tweet like, hey, I'm willing to review your slides and stuff like that. But I feel like not as many people take advantage of that as probably should. Like maybe there's a, a fear of reaching out to some of the people because they're more well known or, or things like that. But I'd, I'd love to figure out a way to kind of be more approachable so people take advantage of that more often. So I know your name's on there, Eric. How many times have, have people reached out to you? Zero. Any? I've had uh, I mean, I've had people I've already known ask me, but I don't think anybody knew from being on that list. And I don't know if it's, it's from the wiki page or from just me babbling on Twitter, but I've had three people ask me for help with their... Uh, Non-GopherCon related talks, so you know, not not our conference, but other people's, and it's gone really well. And I, I hope that people continue to do that. But like you said, I don't know how to 
encourage that anymore. I take it back. I did have one. How about you, Russ? How many have you got? Assuming I haven't missed any email, I have gotten zero. That's amazing. (laughs) I I feel like people may feel like it's presumptuous. So even even when being offered. So like I'd I'd like to find more ways to do that, whether, you know, um, at a local meetup, we host a, uh, you know, bring your slides and we'll help day or like something that encourages more people to do that. What if we put those those people behind some sort of uh, email alias and made it um, made it a little more anonymous? Maybe anonymous isn't the right word, but made it a little less certain that you were going to hit Russ Cox when you sent that email. Maybe people would feel less intimidated by uh, sending a request out. I mean, if the goal is to get people to have emails land in my mailbox, then I guess that might work. But um, <laughs> I, I actually, I thought about that, but but I, I, I thought it was really important that people could select who they wanted to talk to because you might feel comfortable with someone or you might have seen someone give a talk and you feel comfortable approaching them, but you don't feel comfortable just emailing an anonymous list and not even knowing who's going to see uh, your request for help. And so I, I thought it was actually very important that that you know the people asking for help got to choose who they asked for help. And... Um, so, you know, that is a good point. Yeah, I, I agree yeah. with that. That makes sense. And, and realistically, we could have both. This is true. I, and I think we can probably do a job, a good job, probably of, you know, reminding people of the list and that, you know, we, we all volunteered our names willingly. Somebody didn't just put us on there that we, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We could add text to that, to that effect. I think that. This page is important, right? I created this page because I wanted people to be able to find places to get help. But, you know, this is probably like step five or something in what we need to fix. Um, You know, I think it's probably more important to encourage conference organizers to make sure that they're casting a wide net so that, you know, it's not just people who are following the conference circuit that know that these conferences are looking for speakers, right? You have to actively advertise to lots of different groups. Um, to try to get the word out there that, you know, this conference exists and they want you to come speak. And, you know, that's got to be step one. Right. And so this is helping with, you know, people who have somehow gotten through that part and and know that they kind of like to give a talk and maybe they want to talk it over with someone. But I think that, you know, we need to step back and, and, you know, also focus on these sort of bigger, higher impact things as well. Yeah. But and so how about if the conference organizers helped helps promote this resource, for example, this resource is specific or resources like that. Because for example, if I never spoke at a conference and I have low self-confidence and, you know, I, I could majorly benefit from help, but I couldn't get that kind of help or didn't know the help was out there, I would never submit a CFP. So you, I can see your conference um, announcements, but, and I can see that, okay, you're making it safe for me, but if I can't, really submit a good CFP, I wouldn't do it. Absolutely. You got it. We have to do everything. Yeah. Ours says that our, the GopherCon says that all speakers will be assigned uh, a mentor of their choice and a mentor will help you from every step along the way up until delivery, something like that. I don't remember the exact words, but if there's a way to word that better, I'd love to change it next year to make it more welcoming and more comforting. And we can probably link to that speaker's page on the CFP page saying, if you'd like help preparing your proposal, these people are, you know, are oh, that's willing. a good idea. Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Then I think the next uh, bridge to cross is a lot of people, when you talk to them, won't even look at the CFP page because they just think they don't really have anything of value to offer. So they don't even bother trying. And you know, how do, how do we approach those people and say like, you know, we all have vast experiences and things like that. There's, there's usually something people can learn from your experience. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'll, I'll do the next uh, free software Friday. Cause I got super excited about this one last night. The visual studio code team released Linux support for the new live share feature. And I got to try it out this morning for about an hour and it blew my doors off. I was so impressed with how cool it was. I was remotely connected to someone else's Go project. So I had no none of this code on my local machine. And yet I could um, 
browse through the entire process and look at all of the source code. I could make changes. We could see each other's changes live. You could, there's a little button where you can summon someone to come, you know, come look at this file I'm editing right now. Um, but the coolest thing is that it's got a built-in like ngrok. So the person running the, the code on the other end can share the port, the network port that code's running on. And it appears on my machine like it's localhost. So they're running a web server on port 8080 off in California. And I just go to localhost port 8080 and I see the website. It was That's so awesome. amazing. It, I, I've got goosebumps right now. It, it's going to be so awesome for live pairing, for uh, you know remote team working. I can't wait to use this more. Super cool. So shout out to the Visual Studio Code team who is kicking butt. That's and cool. Russ, I, I had seen you had uh, you had posted a project in there. Yeah, so you know we talked about Plan Nine a little bit, and the editor that I use came from Plan Nine. It's called Acme, and if you Google for me and Acme, you can find a screencast I did a number of years ago. Uh, and I just want to give a shout out to Paul Lalonde and and Rob Kroger who have been working on a, a port of Acme to Go, and it's called Edwood. It's a GitHub RJ Kroger Edwood, and um, I don't think it's quite usable yet. I think that they're getting close. But uh, I'm really excited to see how it turns out, and I just wanted to, you know, call that out. That's awesome. Acme is still one I haven't played with yet. I keep meaning to add it to my list of editors to try, but I just haven't gotten around to it. What's Honestly, its I, I'm sure. Point? I'm sure that you're all lapping me with uh, all your fancy editors. So, like, I don't, I don't know that I would encourage you to like go use Acme. But um, the, the main selling point is that it's programmable in much the same way that. Uh, you know, Plan 9, everything was a file system, and so you could, like, program through the file system and present things. Acme had that sort of idea, too. In fact, you know, under the covers, Acme actually is a file server, but it's running on Unix, so you can't see the files that easily. But uh, it lets you do plugins that, you know, talk to the editor, and but they're separate processes, and so it doesn't matter what language they're written in. It's not like, you know, Emacs, where everything's written in Elisp. And so that actually gives you a fair amount of power, um, so I have written, you know, Acme plugins, essentially different programs that, you know, talk to Acme and, and a lot of those are written in Go. I can, you know, do GitHub issues. I can look at code review comments. I can do all that in Acme and that's all ex external programs written in Go. And so th that for me is I have, you know, all these comforts that help me be more productive. But, you know, watching other people, you know, as far as like actual text editing, right? Like you guys are light years ahead of me and that's okay. I think once you reach a certain point in your career, you're just like, um, like, even for me, people were talking about a bunch of stuff in VS Code for I don't even know how long. And I'm like, I've been using Vim for 10, 15 years, something like that. It's just, I don't even want to reconfigure Vim, much less learn a new editor, you know? <laughs> All right. Did anybody have any other projects uh, we want to give a shout out to or people um, before we close the show? I want to give a shout out to the entire Go community. Um, you know, I talked about how I was staying in front of GopherCon and, you know, 700 people and it seemed like a lot. And now it's, it's just completely nuts. Um, you know, we have people doing podcasts and conferences and books and courses and meetups and all this sort of stuff. And, and, you know, Go would not be the success that it is without absolutely everyone who's here. And, you know, we want to keep bringing even more people in and make it even more successful. But I'm so thankful to everyone who's here. Um, there's like absolutely no way that I could have spent the last 10 years having so much fun working on go if everyone else hadn't showed up, you know, I would have moved on to something else and go would have been shut down. And, uh, I'm so thrilled that that didn't happen. And, you know, thank you to everyone who's, you know, come along for the ride. It's, it's really fun. Agreed. It has been this, fun. Yes. <laughs> I, I think part of my love is, isn't just the language. It's the community. It's just, just too much fun. And the conferences too. Like I can't even keep up with um, the number of conferences that keep popping up. I'm I'm actually really sad. I'm going to miss some of them. And then like really cool vacationy areas too, like Iceland <laughs> and Brazil and. Yeah, the new one in is it Seattle? Go go northwest. I'm really yeah. disappointed. It it's on. It's like the day before GoLang UK because I accepted a speaking slotted Golang UK and, and I wanted to go to the new one in Seattle too. But that only leaves me like an overnight flight to London to get there. I don't know if I can pull that off. You can try. I could try, but I'm getting <laughs> too old for that crap. 
Oh, I highly recommend you go to the conference in Brazil. It was amazing. Oh, they're opening their CFP on Monday. There we go. Super exciting. There we go, Eric and Brian, too. Yeah, I need to think of a topic. And Russ. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when is GopherCon Brazil? What, What month is that in? October? November. November. Oh, even better. As long as it's not August. Feel feel lucky, Russ. Oh. Last time. Um, I'm sorry, I stand corrected. Is it September? They moved the date. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I had to remember it had shifted for some reason. I thought it was October. But yeah, last time we had somebody from the Go team on. Uh, we had Brad Fitzpatrick on, and Carlicia got him to to do something, close an issue or something. <laughs> like, That's right. She bugged him. <laughs> I've had this issue open. But, but <laughs> it was awesome. I didn't come prepared to think, darn it. <laughs> Could have gotten milked something out of us. <laughs> uh, so I think we are about out of time. But uh, thank you, uh, everybody, for being on the show. Huge thank you, Russ, for coming on and talking to us today. It's been a blast. It's been lots of fun. Thank you. We're so excited we finally got you on. Yeah. And, and thank you to all of our listeners. Um, if you're not following us, you can follow us on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Um, if you have suggestions for topics or guests, uh, please file an issue at github.com slash GoTimeFM slash ping. And with that, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Go Time. I hope you enjoyed it. Do us a favor, go on Overcast, go on Apple Podcasts, go on wherever you're listening to this podcast. Favorite it, share it, like it, tweet it, whatever you got to do. Help us promote this show to your friends and fellow gophers. Bandwidth for Go Time and Changelog is provided by Fastly. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast here at Changelog and fix things because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com or an Apple Podcasts or an Overcast or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Carlos, you still here? I'm still here. How's your parrot? My parrot? Yeah, don't you got a bird? Isn't it a parrot? It's a cockatiel. Um, cockatiel. Cockatiel. There's a difference, right? The, yeah, it's a small, very tiny one. Oh. I mean, a cockatoo is a big, big white one. Right. The one okay. I have is small, yellowish. So I had one of those when I was a kid, and his name was Gooby. Oh. Gooby. And he would come up, he would crawl up your arm, up your leg, whatever, and sit on your shoulder and you could have something in your mouth and he would take it out of your mouth, you know, that kind of thing. Like, it was a really fun bird. That's so cute. And then somebody came to visit. And this bird would walk on the floor like a like a dog, like a cat, and just walk around the whole house. He didn't fly. I don't know why. He would fly every once in a while to get away. But for the most part, he traveled via feet. And he's a bird. <laughs> and, uh, well, he got stepped on. And that was the end of Gooby. Oh. It was a real oh bummer. My, I did not see that coming. <laughs> now I want to go to the corner and cry. It was a twist. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Yep. No trigger warning. What's the matter Google. with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of, I kind of teed it up by saying that he traveled by feet. <laughs>